This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We can't travel overseas now, but I must say, even when we could, there was one country that was never on my bucket list. But Denise Leith has opened my eyes to this country in her book, The Night Letters. Welcome, Denise. Thank you, Jan. It's lovely to be with you. Sophia's father and I shared the same desire for Sophia to get out of this country and come home (laughs) to Australia. So where is Sophia living? She lives in Kabul in a place called Shahir Square. It's an imaginary place, of course. I'm a writer of fiction. And Shahir Square is near the old city, so it's thick in the middle of Kabul. And it's a rather large square and it's cobblestoned. It has two trees in the middle of it, a pistachio tree and a fig tree. And they're ancient trees that came from an ancient garden because Shahir Square used to be part of a very wealthy man's home and part of his garden. And all around the square are the shops and the houses of the people who live in Shahir Square. So when Sophia looks down from her apartment, which is in a house in Shahir Square, and she has the only little balcony there. When she looks down, she's looking down over the top of the the trees and to the shops and the cobble square and across opposite is where her doctor's surgery is so she can see her surgery. from. So she only has to walk across the square every day from work and home. You describe it with so much colour and you give all the inhabitants their own history. We know that it's an old square because it has a tea house. In the tea house, Babur's family have owned it for generations. That's right. In fact, um, his uncle, and this is not that he exists, but the uncle that I talk about exists. He was one of the conquerors of Kabul and Afghanistan and he loved back in those days, I think it was 15, 1600s, he loved Kabul so much and it was so beautiful that he said that when he died, he wanted to be buried there because if there was heaven on earth, it is this, it is this, it is this. And that's not how we see Kabul anymore or Afghanistan. It isn't, it isn't. What we do see quite often when we see Afghanistan is older people and they've there's quite a few of them in this square there's Iqbal the cobbler and he learned cobbling from the age of six and now he's old and he's has failing eyesight there's also Amar the apothecist who seems to have an an interest or of Benez the police chief's wife who always comes out of her gate with a canary and sweeps that very pomegranate tree you spoke of. So these people are in the square and Sophia is watching them. Now, we didn't actually say what she was doing there in Afghanistan. Okay, so Sophia is a young Australian woman. By the time we meet her, she's in her uh, about mid-30s, early to mid-30s. And she had always been fascinated in Afghanistan from a small child. And I got this idea because I wasn't fascinated in Afghanistan. But a number of years ago, I did a book on war correspondence. And one of them, Donatella Lorch, who worked for um, CNN, she was telling me how she 
from a tiny age had been obsessed by Afghanistan. And so this is how I got this idea that, that Sophia was obsessed by Afghanistan. And when she finished her medical degree as a young practitioner, she saw an ad for a position to work with the women in Shahir Square with uh, Dr. Shabril, who owned the surgery. He, of course, couldn't work with women and he employed her. And so she went, she packed up and went to Afgh- Afghanistan for a year. But of course, she stayed a lot longer. When she first arrived in Afghanistan, she went to a hilltop village to help a doctor there. Now, he's also with the MSF and the UN and makes a reappearance in her life five years later. But it's in that hilltop village that Sophia gets into a certain area of doctoring. What's that? Uh, what Sophia does there, because she goes to that hilltop village, Brill, the doctor she works for, they, they really want her to stay and they're not sure that she's committed to staying to Afghanistan. So she'd been in the country for six months and they, he says to her, you need to go and see some of the country. So she hears about a doctor from MSF who is working in a village in a high in the mountains of the Hindu Kush and she goes there to work with him for a very short time. And when she arrives, he's really happy that she has arrived because he says, one of the things they really need in this village is is midwifery. They need to help the women because there's a lot of women and and babies dying and in childbirth and and from childbirth. And she starts midwifery in the village, but also, you know, she she spends a lot of time with the women. They teach her of the herbs that they use and the old practices. But she decides to stay after that. And that's what she does for the next five years because we meet her five years later. Look, I'm going to get Denise Leith to read from her book about the night letters. And this is how the locals back in Shahir Square think of Sophia. Okay, so this was when Sophia first arrives in the square. It didn't take long for the word to spread among the women of Shahir Square that the new foreign doctor they had originally told Dr. Jabril they did not want was a sympathetic ear who could be trusted with their secrets and the floodgates of female dissatisfaction descended upon Sophia's surgery. Although the women were soon arriving with legitimate and mostly diagnosable illnesses, the precedent had been set and the women came to expect their consultation time to exceed an hour, covering a wide and varying range of concerns which might or might not include the marital, the familial, social, and political. And what the new doctor wasn't told about a neighbour's wayward son, or a cousin's useless no-good husband, or Afghanistan's corrupt politicians was not worth knowing. Unwittingly, Sophia had become a therapist for the women of Shahir Square. Well, we know that women's lives changed when the Taliban were in power, but we also see that within some families, women are still very much respected. Sophia works with Dr. Jabril. Now, he may be male, but his wife, Sarah, is definitely his equal. Oh, yes, I think Sarah's in charge, and he knows Sarah's in charge. And, in fact, he just, you can tell in the book that he loves her to death. She's so brilliant and, and so interesting, and Zara is definitely in charge. 
No. And she's such a, a, a met, you know, she does lots of work in, in Kabul and she's mm. a very strong woman, very strong. In contrast, Sophia lives above the chief police officer Wazim's house and we learn also that his wife is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> yes, Benez, I wouldn't like to come across Benez in the dark night. Benez, but, of course, we do learn later on that. I don't know how you felt, but you love Benez. She's, oh. she's this... She's really this gorgeous character that's very grumpy and dressed in black and and the only thing Americans, you know, taught her that was worth learning was um, the fact that uh, sleep deprivation is a form of torture. She learned that from uh, watching the news when they were in, in Iraq. And her husband, of course, snores really badly and she used to complain to Sophia that, you know, he used, his snoring used to keep her awake and, and she didn't know what to do about it. But then she realised that um, snoring was a form of torture and so she thought that would be a really good... What a reason to kill him. A reason to kill him and she'd get off because he'd been torturing her her whole life. But, of course, she loves her husband and, and uh, he absolutely adores her too, yeah. No, well, there's dreams and there's realities. And unfortunately, <laughs> there's the Jamal Mina slum area. Now, this is also a, a rather unsafe area that uh, Sophia goes to to help with uh, Tabin, the woman who runs the clinic there. Well, people, women do run businesses in Afghanistan. I mean, I remember reading about a woman who run a, ran a taxi service out of Kandahar, and Kandahar is pretty terrifying. Kandahar's now Taliban territory again. Um, Taban, I think, was able to do that. Of course, Jamal Mina is, is a real place in, in Kabul. And it's the slums that go up the mountains around Kabul. Kabul is in a valley. And the people who flocked there for different reasons over the last you know, 30, 40 years had to build up these mountains, which have you know, magnificent views, but they live in abject poverty. And she's able to stay there because she does good work for the people in the slums, because she also gets support from Jibril and Sophia. They support her working in the slums and because her brothers now support her working in the slums um, after a little talk with Jibril. Uh, they didn't like her working in the slums and not asking for money, but um, the Shabir tenant of, of Islam is charity and That's her brothers right. were wealthy. She was seen to be deformed because she had a hair lip, so, you know, she wasn't marriage material, so she had a more independent life. That's but right. this is where the crux of the book comes. There are young boys who have started to disappear from the slum and one of them is a nephew of Sophia's patient. This is where we learn about Acha Bazi. I think I might have pronounced it incorrectly, but can you explain what it is? So Bacha Bazi is boy love. It's pedophilia accepted in Afghanistan, but it's widely known to, to happen in Afghanistan. It's illegal, but the police don't really do anything about it for all sorts of reasons that are explained in the book. Young boys are taken or they're sold by their parents who live in abject poverty, and they're taught to wear makeup and dance and dress like girls, and they perform in dancing for groups of men and and then they will, at the end of the night, by their owner, even be given away to someone or kept for himself or bought for the night. It's, it's awful. It's the underbelly that we have in every society. It's mentioned, you know, even, even in Australia, 
There's tours for Western men to Asia or Catholic priests, perhaps. It does happen everywhere. What you brought out, and it's the title of the book, The Night Letters. I feel that there could be a love letter written at night and who would be the sender and who would be the recipient. Or Taliban were known for their night letters, but these were targeted specifically with what anybody had done wrong. But these letters were very simple. All they said is, if you don't stop, someone will get hurt. And they were pinned on the only gate that was brightly coloured. It was a vivid turquoise. So, and this was on Baznev's gate. What happened in the square when one of the recipients read it? Okay, so he stole the letter from the gate. Early morning after prayers, he saw the letter on Benez's turquoise gate and he took it off because he knew it was a night letter or he believed it was a night letter. And the Taliban uh, send out night letters or Shahab Namah. They post them around villages or in towns and they'll put them on your door if you're doing something they don't like. So they're warning you, you have to stop that behaviour or something's going to happen. And he realises or he believes it's a night letter from the Taliban and it says, you know, if you don't stop, someone's going to be hurt. So he tries to work out who is going to be hurt and he tries to stop it because he really wants to protect his friends in the square. You start to see the secrets of the people who live in Shahir Square. They've all got these secrets and they start, each one of them starts to think it's about him. And it's just, I think, a little bit amusing how they each decide to change their life because, you know, it could be him that the Shabnamar is about. So <laughs> that was beautiful, the way that secrets went around and uh, oh, yes. people's consciousness was, was discovered yet again. Look, well, that happens in, no, that can happen anywhere, can't it? You know, we, there's always cultural differences, but sometimes, as you say, boundaries need to be shifted judgments suspended and sometimes there's questions that are asked across generations and it's not cultures and Iman the young female receptionist asked Sophia are you frightened of growing old and being ugly and it's here that there's a verse of poetry recited back to her. Uh, the poem is absolutely beautiful. I discovered it quite by accident and it's by Jeanette Aquinas and she's an American woman and she wrote the poem about her mother and it's called Beneath the Sweater and the Skin. That's where your book starts and would you just yeah. read the first verse? Okay. I love it. I love it. How many years of beauty do I have left? She asked me. How many more do you want? Here. Here is 34. Here is 50. The whole book is worthwhile reading, but that poem at the front is just amazing. And then, Denise Leith, you go right at the very back, and it's something I so believe in. You talk about editors. Editors are so important, and we really, we, we really don't give them enough, enough kudos. My life, as I said at the beginning, would never take me to Afghanistan, but your fiction has given me a wonderful little look-in. So The Night Letters is set in Afghanistan with its ongoing problems, but also with the wealth of characters who an Australian doctor meets and learns of their secrets, friendships and loves. Denise Lee, thank you so much for your wonderfully entertaining book, The Night Thank you, Jan. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
And now it's David's turn. Breaking the law to solve a murder could be just as bad as committing murder to subvert the law. This is just one of the conundrums in Sarah Thornton's recent novel, White Throat. So, Sarah, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much, David. A pleasure to be here. Now, the backdrop to the murder in your novel is actually very identifiable. And if you'll forgive me for reading out, the Federal Minister for the Environment and Energy was considering the environmental impact statement supporting Marakai Mining's proposal to build a new coal mine 50 kilometres inland from Piyama. The project involved road and rail following the river right past Turtle Shores, then on to a planned two-berth deep shipping port with a dredged channel out to the ocean. The development had a lot of local support, and only partly because of the new jobs that were promised. It would also be a heaven-sent relief for the cluster of residents, mostly pensioners, whose houses would be acquired to make room for the port. A financial planning scandal had ripped through Piyama recently, wiping out nest eggs and just about everything else, leaving a trail of life-throttling mortgages. These are actually very identifiable concerns. Oh, indeed. And the financial scandal element is uh, well known to me through friends of ours who are still going through the nightmare of that many, many years down the track. Of course, it was prevalent um, pre-GFC, but we've seen it continue post then. And financial stress is as devastating as many of the other crises that we face in life. And I wanted to draw that story into the novel and give it some life. And of course, the mining development with the coal port, well, that's a very familiar theme, particularly up in Queensland, where I am at the moment. We've got the Adani development involved, another coal port as well. And it divides the community in Payama in, in White Throat. And that sense of division comes through all through the book, that conflict and that drama lights up the story leading to the potential of people committing murder. But your heroine is Clementine Jones, who has a bit of a past. She does indeed. Some years back, she's uh, had a dreadful car accident. She's been driving well over the limit and she's uh, collided with another vehicle and, and killed a young mother. She's tormented by the shame and the guilt. She's spent time in prison for manslaughter. And she's now just running from everything she previously knew as a corporate lawyer, trying to put space between herself and everything she knew in the past and and probably carve out a, a new life for herself if she can. Uh, she's It's kind of a proactive strategy, even though it is based around sort of a self-imposed exile. Now, Clem's friend, Helen, who's as much family as friend, has met with a gruesome end and her death is surrounded by doubt. Was it murder? Was it suicide? But part of the problem has also been Helen's involvement in her advocacy for an endangered freshwater turtle. So now all of these competing interests start to come into play. And this raises an intriguing psychological drama here because Clem has to find out who is responsible, but it's an investigation that's not quite an investigation because she's not actually a detective. 
that's always the issue when you write crime thrillers without a cop or detective at the centre. I deliberately chose that model because I really wanted to write about ordinary people. And I know crime thrillers are extraordinary, but a lot of what I explore is what happens when ordinary people cross the line. Lapse, the first novel, was very much about that and, you know, that momentary lapse in time where you make a judgment or take a decision that you can never walk away from and it changes your life forever. So Clem has to come up with novel ways to insert herself into the investigation, if you like, and clearly uh, the police have written it off as a suicide, but Clem is powerfully compelled and you'll find out more about those motivations when you read the novel without giving too much away. She's compelled to find the true answers. But, yeah, she this is where all the tricks of the trade come in, that she's learning how to listen in on conversations, how to weasel your way into uh, situations in order to um, extract information. Speaking of tricks of the trade, she comes across a range of very extreme characters and we can't go into them all, but you've got people like Scott Stanton Green, known as Mr Hyphen, who's one of the mining bosses, and she's got to learn to play these people, to manipulate with each person and with each ego she encounters. Yes, these are sort of skills and expertise that she's brought with her from her corporate lawyer days, which involved a lot of negotiating and trying to get deals over the, over the line. And so she uses those skills, those negotiation, bordering on manipulation skills to extract information. And yes, quite often she's a, somewhat of a chameleon taking on a certain persona in different scenarios in order to have the other person trust her to speak or at least open up in some way. She's yeah. playing on their ego. Yes, she does indeed. Clem's got her own giant size ego, I think, but uh, so she knows how to handle that and she successfully leverages that, extract the information she needs. But you've got people like Karen Bickerstaff in public relations who's very pretentious Ralph Bennett, a pensioner who is quite extreme, and each and all could be sort of implicated in this loss of Helen's life. Now, the personality traits initially, I thought, were quite extreme, but they're actually very real. There are people like this. Oh, definitely. You, you mentioned Ralph Bennett. He's uh, one of the pensioners devastated by... Uh the financial planning scandal, and uh, he is deeply affected by it. And there are some moving scenes with Ralph, but he does explain his view, his philosophy, in no uncertain terms to uh, Clementine. She's speaking on behalf of the Wildlife Society group when she speaks of saving the turtle and he's saying well you're putting reptiles before humans and that's real that's not an, an argument that's lost on me so uh, yeah they're passionate they're in a de very difficult situation the character who's perhaps the most complex in some ways is matthew torrens a former violent standover man but he's got a heart of gold and he's clementine's friend yes matthew torrens is one of my favorite characters to write and he does appear in laps as well 
Um, he's just a big-hearted man whose sense of loyalty is so magnificent and it has led him down paths that he should never have gone down and that includes his standover days. Uh, he's a big guy. He's six foot six and very solid gentleman. He became very handy in a criminal um, ring in, in Victoria as a standover man, but he's going straight or trying to and... Uh, he and Clem have kind of developed this unusual, unorthodox friendship from back in Victoria when Clem was coaching the football team. And I really wanted to explore that friendship more and test it to the limits in Whitethroat. And Matthew Torrens, of course, comes with his own plotline in Whitethroat, which is probably just as suspenseful as as the primary plot. This is where we get a convergence of plot lines. Clem's life is actually being threatened, but so is the life of Matthew Torrens. And we sort of have an intriguing climax where these threats converge, which heightens the opportunity for a little more bloodshed, shall we say. Yes, the two come together in an explosive way of two-thirds, three, three-quarters of the way through the, the story. And uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. Uh, it. It kind of seemed to fall together very neatly and, and smoothly and it's, it's kind of nothing contrived as, it, as you arrive uh, as a reader slowly but surely towards that point. And, uh, yep, there's a bit of bloodshed, not too graphic. That's not my thing, really. Well, the opening was fairly graphic with an impaled body. Indeed, yes. Get through that second page and there's some really gorgeous, real-life living uh, turtles. Uh, you know, all sorts of sweet, sweetness and happiness later on. But also, Clem is not above breaking the law to solve the crime or to find out more. Uh, how justifiable is that? Well... That's the question, and this is the luxury of fiction. You don't have to have a view on that. Um, you can let it flow. And really, uh, this is the exploration I've kind of begun with Clementine, is that her life has been turned around. She's no longer the upright, respectable you know, lawyer with a burgeoning career. She is now in desperate times because of her crisis. And what does it take to slip over that line and and do, do things that normally would be anathema, absolutely inconceivable in your ordinary life. And in Laps, she begins that journey. In White Throat, she's still there and she's on it, um, and even more compelled given the circumstance of the situation. In Laps, it's kind of a, a slow slide into this conspiracy, whereas in White Throat, well, she's done it before and now she's got something so close to her heart to stand up for that she's just not going to let it go. And so you see this ordinary woman taking these highly unorthodox, yes, she tells herself I'm probably doing something criminal right now and then she justifies it in her head, um, almost presenting her own little criminal defence argument in her head and then she goes ahead and does it. Well, we have an intriguing array of vested interests, all capable of committing murder. The book is White Throat, the author, Sarah Thornton, and it's a text publishing release. So, Sarah, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks so much, David. I've really enjoyed it.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.